This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. Hi, everybody. I am so glad we could get together again. And I have the feeling that you'll be glad, too, at the end of the hour, because you're going to find out about uh, a specific career field that we don't talk about that much, but in an organization uh, that has very specific and necessary um, a, a, a kind of a, a kind of obligation to humanity. I was just thinking about what what you use to describe hospice work, and we are going to do that with the help of a chaplain for an organization called Hospice of the Valley. Very successful organization because they do it so well. And uh, Bob Barrett, the Hospice of the Valley chaplain, I will tell you that I was introduced uh, to a, uh, an associate of yours uh, under very different circumstances. My wife's mom, my mother-in-law, uh, was being cared for by one of the hospice facilities of Hospice of the Valley. And in the room walked this large, jolly-looking man. He just had that kind of expression on his face the moment he walked in. And he said to my wife's mom and to Duffy, my wife, and to me, hi, I'm Charlie the chaplain. And I will never forget that for a couple of reasons. One is because it was a great way to introduce yourself in, a, uh, in an atmosphere and an environment that doesn't usually have a lot of laughs attached to it. And the other thing is, is that he was that kind of a guy who brought humor with him. Uh, Bob, I don't know how common that is, but do you feel it's an important quality for a chaplain, particularly doing hospice work, to have a sense of humor? Oh, absolutely, uh, Pat. And I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to be invited onto your show and uh, you're remembering uh, Charles, Charlie Coppinger, and uh, he was just a dynamic and wonderful chaplain. He was with us from 2006 until his passing in February of 2013, and I didn't work directly with him, but I got to know him in some of our larger context, and yes, very gifted at his work. And yes, humor is, I think, an important component. It has its place, and even in the midst of as serious and as sad and sometimes even as tragic as end of life can be, but humor really helps us to reflect on our humanity, and humor is a very close corollary to that spiritual value of joy. So, as appropriate as, you know, the time and the place and the context, the right kind of humor, absolutely. People love to have a good laugh, and 
it's therapeutic on so many levels. Well, we're going to be spending an hour together, you and me and this vast audience that we have internationally on The God Show. Uh, so tell us about you. Tell us about Bob Barrett and uh, where the Barrett family started. Well, uh, I'm a California native, grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, East Bay, and uh, my mom's side of the family is German background out of the Midwest. It came out uh, in the 1940s to California, and my dad lineage all the way back to the 1800s in California. The Barrett side of the family, they came from uh, the Azores, the Portuguese islands out in the, oh, really? middle of the Atlantic. Yeah. I uh, grew up there in the Bay Area, finished college in the Bay Area, Bay Area graduated from Cal State uh, East Bay. Uh, faith and spirituality became very important to me in my college years and uh, went into overseas mission ministry work, cross-cultural work for eight years. And while there, met a fabulous uh, gal named Lynette from uh, Montana who uh, became my wife. And we moved on to uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I finished my uh, Master of Divinity degree in uh, theological studies there and was an associate pastor in Pittsburgh. And then here in Phoenix, uh, pastored a small church and then uh, went to work uh, for Hospice of the Valley back in 2006. And I have just uh, loved it very much. Tell the people uh, tell the people that are listening right now who don't have any direct contact or understanding of this uh, this huge metropolitan complex that we call the Valley of the Sun Greater Phoenix uh, tell them about Hospice of the Valley talk about this organization and why it seems to have this phenomenal reputation for service well, uh, Hospice of the Valley was founded back in 1977 by a minister, Gerald Rosenberry, and some nurses, and it grew from there uh, on the inspiration that came over from England where hospice, the modern concept, was established, and it had just grown when... Uh, the government wisely saw adding this as a Medicare benefit and insurance companies added it as a benefit, able to grow and expand. Uh, a hospice, uh, very simply put, is a healthcare company. It's a very specialized kind of healthcare company that specializes in providing end of life care when uh, treatment options are no longer viable and. Uh, patient and family choose comfort options, you know, a hospice like us, we step in and to fulfill our motto of providing comfort and dignity as life nears its end. But when some people uh, sign on to be a recipient of that service, they don't always pass away. Are they cheating the system? They are not cheating the system. What we get in medicine, and I'm not medically trained, but I work in that environment, is we get a prognosis. We get the best scientific medical prognosis of what a disease progression will normally do 
But we do not get predictions. We don't have a crystal ball. And sometimes people come on our service, Hospice of the Valley, and the care they get is so good with adjusting their medications and and the other supports they get that their decline, and I'm not trying to raise hopes or anything like that, but sometimes we just see that some people, their decline levels off and plateaus, and maybe they even get a little better, and it just happens, and they do what we call graduate from our service. <laughs> nice. And they, when they need to come back, or our arms are open for them. But no, they're not cheating anything or anybody. We it's found just, out about your background, your education, Bob, but I know that there are people right now listening somewhere in the world who is saying, you know, I... I, too, have a bent, a focus, a direction in my life that, that embraces a certain level of spirituality. And I never thought about becoming a chaplain from the standpoint of my career. But uh, how does one do it? Is, it? is it a pattern that's fairly common to all? Well, there seems to be two tracks that people go on. Uh, in Hospice of the Valley, myself, a lot of my colleagues have come through the normal pastoral ministry track of theological education and serving in a congregation and parish. And you, lo and behold, realize more and more that you have gifts in that area of visitation and so on. And you've like myself, transition over to hospice care. Others uh, do it more on the clinical side with their uh, taking the clinical pastoral education and getting that clinical training and moving right into it. Uh, here at Hospice of the Valley, we are a training institution, uh, training hospice, so the support and care that all of us as staff receive ongoing in the latest ways to that people are supported medically, socially, and spiritually. Um, we're well supported here as staff in our mission of providing comfort and dignity as life nears its end. You know that I've never met, as we were just uh, talking about uh, becoming a chaplain and uh, devoting your life to that good work, I've never met a woman, female chaplain, of, oh, any really? kind, of, of any kind, no. Yes, we have several women on our staff, and they have been uh, well-received. And in the community, I've seen women chaplains that I work alongside of and highly esteem and value for their work and the comfort and care they impart. Um, so we do have uh, several women who are on our staff as chaplains. Can't uh, guarantee who you might, if you come on hospice service and elect to have a chaplain, and having a chaplain is optional. We're eager to provide that, but we realize that uh, not some people say, oh, I've got my own spiritual care, or it's very private, and so on. So we don't impose a chaplain on you, so to speak, but we sure are eager to provide that support as people elect. We're talking with and, Bob Barrett, hospice of the Valley Chaplain, a uh, man who has devoted his professional life uh, to, in general terms, uh, the care 
and uh, the um, the skill, the 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 real talent uh, that one has to have in order to provide comfort and those services that are related to being a hospice chaplain. But here's one that I'll bet you hear as much as anything else. If people at least have the courage enough to say to you at a social occasion, so what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a chaplain, the hospice of the valley. And I would imagine an awful lot of folks would say to you, or at least think, isn't your work with hospice depressing? Good question. Yes, people do say that or, or you sense that's what they're thinking. And no, it's not depressing. Now, let's face it, it's end of life and there's sadness and grieving, certainly, but that's a part of life's journey. But depressing, no. What would be depressing is for someone to face end of life without all of the comfort and expertise and support that uh, someone like Hospice of the Valley can provide. Uh, we're a not-for-profit hospice, and that means that we can dedicate our resources fully to taking care of people uh, medically, socially, any way that we can to affirm and uphold them uh, ourselves, uh, with our volunteers, and so on. So no, it's not depressing. Uh, and also, there's a spiritual principle in play here that's expressed in, in many ways. Um, I love how Mother Teresa of the Sisters of Charity put it with her care for the dying in Calcutta. And I'm nowhere on her level she was. But she said it, she put it this way. The miracle isn't that we do this work. The miracle is that we are happy to do this work. There's joy in giving. Uh, it is more blessed to give than receive. Uh, I call it the open hand principle. When you go to give someone, to someone and truly give to them, expecting nothing in return with an open hand, so often that hand is open to receive so much inspiration uh, than you can imagine, to meet a patient and to understand their life journey, their successes, their contributions, their achievements, to see the love and devotion of family and friends marshaled around. Um, there's a lot of inspiration in this journey. Uh, there's, we don't go, you can't go into this looking to get some kind of emotional, spiritual reward. But when your hand is open to give, boy, it gets filled up with all kinds of inspiration and encouragement and just the satisfaction of knowing that you made a difference in someone's life. Well, using her as an example, as you did, uh, you then are among the many who would clearly understand the the remarkable thrill that it was uh, that I had in meeting and having a conversation with Mother Teresa when she uh, came here to establish a tiny convent 
And she, she too, uh, during that day when I was privileged and honored to spend some time with her, she too expressed a level of joy. You used that term just a few minutes ago. She, yeah. she expressed a level of joy, and I, I found it, I found it a, a kind of wonderment that having lived in a place where, from the standpoint of taking a look at the entire population, there seems to be so little joy, at least from our perspective in the West, with the illness and the starvation and the poverty that Calcutta, India, and much of, of that entire country has. And yet she was there taking care of the sickest of the sick. Uh, so many terminal cases, she and her sisters. And I wondered then, and I wonder now with you, where is the joy when you know that the vast majority of people that you're providing a service for are going to be gone shortly? Where is the joy? Well, joy goes with the other spiritual strength as well, such as compassion. And joy, of course, is not happiness. Uh, it's not quite that emotion. Joy involves the strength that it takes to serve and the satisfaction of fulfilling a deeply spiritual value of in this context and in this specialized way being able to step in do no harm and love your neighbor as yourself in this difficult context we all know that there's one death per person all the evidence points us that way. And for us as a culture, as a, as a society, North America, I'll say from the 1950s onward, um, others can debate the issue, but in general, we have got to be the most youth-oriented, death-denying society mm -hmm. that has ever existed on planet Earth. And to be able to integrate this stage of life's journey, dying and death, and to be able to love and support people, and while we're supporting them, to receive the gifts that they have to give too, their gifts of love and inspiration, uh, is it's a beautiful thing. And joy is a part of that. Uh, you know, I'm not saying we go into a, situation with a big pasty smile on no but in terms of the whole context there is joy in the journey there's another emotion too that uh is relatively common uh, and that is anger resentment when a family or an individual in a family doesn't understand God's plan or what that means. Uh, when a family member uh, is, uh, is spending the last hours, the last days on this planet as part of that family, and especially these days when it happens with COVID, 
attacking so many families from within and sometimes multiple losses, I'm sure you must have faced uh, the, the kind of thing that I'm talking about, and that is that family member who looks at you and says, don't, don't give me spiritual quotes. Uh, I don't want to hear about the Bible. I don't want to hear about uh, my, my mom or my father uh, or my husband or my wife being in a better place because it's God's plan. You must have experienced that, Bob. No, I have. But uh, again, you know, it kind of brushes up against the border of people that simply don't want a chaplain there in place. And they're welcome to that. It might be for those reasons. It might be for a lot of other reasons, because they're very well supported spiritually otherwise. But one of the normal parts of our grieving journey, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and so many other writers have pointed out, is anger. And rather than trying to tell people, you know, here's how we're going to fix your anger, no, no, no. What we do is just validate and affirm. That's how you feel. You take this, uh, you're losing a loved one, it hurts painfully, you feel angry about it, it feels unfair. And the one of the very first things of spiritual care is to listen to somebody in an active, affirming way, to, to really hear them and validate that, you've, that they've been heard. And if they want to talk more, that's fine. Uh, if not, one of the things I can do for people is simply listen to them, affirm that anger, and um, provide a validation for them that that's a normal feeling to have and trust that they will find the way to work through that to acceptance of the fact that they're losing their loved one and to be able to find the the virtues and the values that are there as they care for their loved ones, they receive those gifts of inspiration and encouragement from their dying family member or friend as they carry the memories forward of a of a life of uh, so many good gifts that they've imparted but in that point of anger um uh, i you know validate what they're feeling and i'm available to them to to listen and if i can do more great but if i can do that much that's the first and the foundational piece that that takes place in any i think any type of spiritual care during this time when we are reminded of the news about numbers around the planet that we never thought would be yeah. possible, uh, in a time when medical science has made so many strides and yet we still feel so incredibly helpless during the pandemic, you in a field most uniquely associated with the people who are suffering from this. And I wonder if you could tell me how your work has changed during this time of enforced separation, different, div different than the loss of family members and friends and loved ones. 
for so many people who can't be with them because contact isn't allowed. Talk about that. That's a great question. And that, in the last seven months, is a primary issue that I see personally. I am within Hospice of the Valley. Much of our care is right at in people's homes, but we have teams that specialize on caring for people in facilities, assisted living, skilled nursing, and I'm on one of those teams. So the number one in addition to the regular support for people on hospice care, the number one thing is for multitudes of loved ones in nursing homes that they don't have COVID, but because of precautions due to the disease, their family can't get in to see them. Mm. And that's so heartbreaking. And my work has changed, and more of my focus is being available to the family or uh, for many of those people, not all of them, there are people that facilities don't allow me to go in and visit unless it's a end very end-of-life situation. I can at least go in and visit with their loved one. Uh, perhaps I can put their family member on the phone or do a video call, and there is some measure of support that way. But this is, uh, talk about, you know, your previous topic relates right here in terms of the anger and the frustration of as life nears its end, we want to draw closer to our loved one. And instead, we've had this f separation forced on us. Have you ever had in your professional life as a chaplain, have you ever had an experience comparable to this? No. No, I've been a chaplain since 2006 and in pastoral ministry since 1992. No, as a pastor and now as a chaplain for 14 years, I've, up until now, always had access to be at the bedside of a patient. And now, not necessarily so. I will, for the rest of my life, carry with me the pictures that I've seen on the news um, of family members outside the window of a loved one's room at a hospice or some care facility. And it's as close as they can get, separated right. by glass, and, and they're touching the window. Uh, they're, they're trying to create some kind of a contact. And... Uh, there's just an added dimension of tragedy to those experiences, don't you think? You, I, the word you chose fits perfect. Let's call it what it is. It's tragic. It really is. Uh, a foundational level of comfort, spiritual comfort, emotional comfort, is being with a person. And when we can't be with them or our being is mediated by a window or a phone call or even a Zoom call, as good as that is, it's it's just hard. We want to touch. We want to be with that person. And so that's what patients and what families have wrestled with. And since we're looking at a tough issue squarely, 
square in the eye, let's go one step further. A lot of these people in facilities, they've had, in addition to their physical decline, cognitive decline, dementias and so on, and they have lost the capacity to understand why my family doesn't visit me anymore. I've been abandoned. Mm. Now, that doesn't apply across the board, but there's a a significant number of residents in facilities that because of their dementia to cognitive decline, that's what they're carrying with them. And you can imagine how, I don't know that I can imagine how families feel with that, even though I'm up against it every day. So it just magnifies the importance of what spiritual care we can provide and what ways that we can support families and and their loved ones to affirm that yes their light shines yes their love is getting through yes they're doing the very best they can in this highly unusual and uh, very difficult pandemic this COVID-19 pandemic that we're going through our guest is Bob Barrett Uh, he's a hospice chaplain And, Bob, you were talking earlier um, at the beginning of the program about the beginning of hospice and hospice care. Uh, Has it grown to be planet-wide? Do most cultures uh, around the world have some form of hospice care? Uh, Europe and North America, I know, yes, but... Cultures around the world wise, I'm not sure. I don't have, I'm sorry, I'm not equipped to answer that question. Well, you can go back and do your homework and then come back and join us again sometime because I, okay. I will always find you welcome, particularly because of the sensitivity and the tenderness of the work you do. Uh, and And the sensitivity that you must have under the circumstances of the situation that we were just talking about, descriptively, families that are separated uh, by the rules and regulations of non-contact in this pandemic period. Have you had occasion to have to break the news to a family outside of the hospice facility that that family member has now passed? I haven't. I can't think of an example where I have been the one to break the news. Usually it's our medical staff is right there, and they know that it's imminent or that that loved one has passed. And it is at that point that I might be brought in, invited in, asked in by the family for an additional level of spiritual support. But we do everything that we can to try to prepare families for that moment. Uh, We have a booklet that we give to uh, our families called Joining the Journey. And to help them to be able to anticipate signs of their loved one's decline, along with the ongoing briefings that the nurse, doctor, social worker will provide so that they can be prepared for that moment. 
and uh, spiritually as well, trying to build spiritual care into their journey along the way so that when that time comes, their faith and their spirituality has some preparation as well to uh, step into that moment and to uh, experience the grief. And we trust as well to know that they have done their very best to care for their loved one and that uh, we as well will be there to support them as well and their bereavement needs ongoing with our wonderful bereavement counselors and that bereavement department that we have. And there are bereavement counselors, grief counselors, chaplains, uh, all uh, with uh, unique and individual services to provide. But a chaplain also is a grief counselor. Bob, you have to admit that uh, because you're there during these often agonizing periods of time. And uh, for the people right now who are listening who might be on the edge of that kind of uh, experience, having had the experiences that you've had positively and negatively, give me advice on how not to handle grief. Grief, it's uh, one of the things I tell people. And as chaplains, uh, we're especially dealing with the anticipatory grief of anticipating losing their loved one. And a phrase that I like to share with people is to affirm their grieving, that it's part of this process. And here's the phrase, grieving is not a sign of weakness nor a lack of faith. It is the price of love. And people of faith uh, have grieved their losses for long centuries. Look in the Judeo-Christian tradition. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Samuel, David, Jeremiah. Uh, In the Christian tradition, um, we look at Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus wept. Uh, When we grieve our losses, we're in the best of company. And uh, we see grief expressed in every culture and every religion around the world. And so to really affirm people in their grieving that they're, they're going, they're facing a loss that is irredeemable. It's separation from their loved one. And grieving is that process that helps to strengthen them. It helps to comfort them. It seems like a strange way to do it, but somehow the heart is being comforted in that uh, preparation. And an additional thing I'm persuaded of that's taking place in this grieving process is that life legacy of your loved one is being rooted a little deeper into your hearts. You know, when I'm, I see it, you know, throughout the process of families. Uh, as they prepare the room or their loved one, whether it's at home or in a facility, which is my usual context, there's pictures of parents or of family members, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. 
Uh, and that all speaks to legacy. You know, military honors, service, accomplishments, it's all there. That's legacy, things that they've achieved and accomplished. Their life story. And that story lives in the heart of their family, their friends, their loved ones. And they're going to take that story forward after their loved one passes. And so in this grieving, uh, that story is being rooted a little deeper in their hearts. And they're going to carry that story with them forward for inspiration and encouragement all of their lives. So as I'm counseling with people and they're dealing with anticipatory grieving or after the loss of their loved one, the grieving of lossing, of their loss, excuse me, um, I want to affirm, you know, a, a piece at a time, a step at a time, that there's positive things taking place uh, in their grief. And grief is grief. It's not, <laughs> it hurts. It's painful. Let's face it. Uh, I love a quote from uh, the inspirational writer Henry Nouwen. He said, when we are crushed like grapes, we cannot think of the wine that we will become. Mm. And as we're being crushed, as we are grieving, anticipating the loss of our loved one, or we have lost them and we grieve their passing, uh, there's a transformation taking place in our hearts that we have loved in a difficult situation and we have cared and supported, and we carry that legacy forward with us. You gave us your personal perspective uh, in part uh, through the eyes of a Christian chaplain. Yes. What, what happens? Well, I'm not Christian chaplain per se. Well, that's what I was uh, asking, though, what I was about know, to... You a lot of the people I support are Christian, and I am too, quite frankly. But I seek to serve all faiths, all perspectives, and occasionally I'll get people say, I don't have a belief perspective, but I just want spiritual support, and uh, not defined in religious terms. And I'm available to people for that as well. And when a family member or uh, an employee, a part of the hospice organization that you're part of, um, comes to you and says, uh, in this particular room or suite, uh, there's a, a gentleman who probably only has a few days left, but the family has requested some spiritual counseling, and that man is a Buddhist. Do you find a uh -huh. universality? Do you find a universality to the spiritual counseling that you offer? Yes, there is a, a universality that can be embraced, and that is uh, the foundational spiritual virtue of love. How love was expressed in that person's life through, again, their life, their family legacy, and how love is being expressed by that family as well, and to affirm and support them in doing the one thing that they alone can do. We can get other chaplains for you, or, or other nurses and so on, but we've only got one family for this person. And to step alongside and affirm and support them and as well, uh, for people that want their own 
spiritual religious tradition, whether it's Buddhist or Jewish or Muslim or even under Christianity, they want a priest to come, a Catholic priest to mm-hmm. come or whatever it may be. We uh, have referrals in place and do whatever we can to make sure that their tradition, their faith, their belief system is honored and supported. But has an atheist asked you for comfort? You know, I can't think of specific examples, but I had a a situation a few years ago where their loved one was an atheist and died, and they wanted me to do the funeral. And Mm. I was honored to step in and do that funeral for them. And uh, to, in a non-religious way, affirm the love that had been expressed in their loved one's life and the love that they were carrying forward in their lives as well. Uh, No prayers, no scriptures, just provided This is kind of of a basic how-to question, but it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the program, Bob, uh, to, to find out in advance of our need, uh, how things work. Do you always wait for an invitation uh, at a hospice facility uh, from a family member or a friend to go into a room and visit with the person who was a guest of Hospice of the Valley? Or do you, as happens many times in hospitals, uh, everywhere, I guess, and that is there's a knock on the door and a uh, kindly face pops in and says, I'm chaplain so-and-so, uh, would, you, uh, would you like to visit for a while, even if I haven't made any, uh, any invitation or uh, any desire to necessarily see someone spiritually? How do you get to the person who is in need? Great question. When a person is admitted to Hospice of the Valley service, they get a visit from a nurse, and typically not long after that from a social worker. And they are asked by one or both of those staff if they would like a chaplain to visit. Mm. I That's our normal procedure, and that covers about 99.9% of uh, our chaplain practice. I mean, there are, you know, exceptions to everything, I suppose, but it's uh, that's how we do it, and it accomplishes a couple of things. It's very thorough. Rather than our chaplains hoping they got to everybody, the nurse and the social worker do get to everybody, so everyone gets that opportunity. And then secondly, without the having to face the chaplain, at least for some people, those that don't feel that they want to have a chaplain, I think it's a little easier for them to say no, just as I hope that it's easy for them to say yes, too, if that's what they desire. But uh, that's that's how that works. And our nurses, our social workers, they're just very open and eager to present that spiritual support to families. And um, I just love the teams of people I get to work with, our nurses, our social workers, our nurses' aides, and so on, on on my end of the spectrum. But that's, that's another story. Well, wherever you are as a listener, I will tell you 
having had uh, a, a personal and a professional association with Hospice of the Valley. I uh, am absolutely uh, stunned at the impact that this organization has on, so far, everyone I've ever met that had contact with the organization. It is a nonprofit organization uh, that does uh, daily wonderful things, just something as simple as, as regularly providing music. There's a piano in so many of the facilities. And... Uh, there's uh, there's joy and there's uh, there is an attitude of understanding and there's still an attitude of we go back to the word joy uh, that uh, permeates the place for the folks who are coming in to visit or the folks who are staying there. Uh, Bob, one of the events that I'm close to uh, is the light up a life event that goes on during the holiday season every December, and uh, I've been uh, part of it from the very beginning when it was just a gathering of folks who had lost someone that took place in the middle of, a, of an outdoor shopping mall that had a, a relatively small grassy area where people congregated. And there was music, and uh, uh, there were uh, inspirational messages uh, and uh, pictures of the people that were projected on large screens. It got to be so it got to be so mammoth that it had to be moved to a huge centrally located park right in the middle of metropolitan Phoenix. And uh, now we're talking about an audience of two to 3,000 people every time this goes on, except for this year when it has to be done uh, virtually on television. But most of the time, it's people gathered in chairs and uh, on hillsides, and they are really celebrating the lives and the experiences that they've shared with whomever it is that is the past loved one. I've been there now from the beginning as a participant and as a co-host, Bob, but I've also uh -huh. been there. I've been there for both of my wife's parents, one year apart, and uh, the pictures on the big screens that we've shared with everybody uh, the year that they passed away and uh, that we celebrated because they also shared with all of us the comfort that was provided by Hospice of the Valley. Uh, it's, it's really an extraordinary event, and it's the kind of extra thing that Hospice of the Valley is, is known for. If there are communities, Bob, listening right now who have thought about creating a hospice location or a series of locations, help them do it the right way from the beginning. Somebody who just says, we ought to have that in our town. How would you start? 
Well, what I would recommend is call us. Call Hospice of the Valley. Good. And we have been a resource for the community. We are, as I mentioned earlier, we're a teaching hospice. We're, for example, opening up a dementia campus next summer, August of next year, to care for, have a campus that cares for people with dementia, which, of course, is done all over the community and the world, but it'll be a teaching campus, too. So tell them to call us. Go to hov.org and give us, shoot us an email. Tell us what you want to do, and I know that we'll direct you uh, to the expertise and to whatever extent we can provide any resources at our disposal to help multiply that vision or give us a call just uh, at uh, or 602-530-6900. Um, just contact HOV.org. A nonprofit hospice. But when you say that, uh, that doesn't mean that it is fee-free. It sounds, I'm sure, to many people who are listening right now, with all of these extras and with all of the added benefits of this particular kind of uh, care and service. It sounds expensive. Well, uh, what's the price of providing great medical care as life nears its end? Uh, I say we're very cost-effective in what we do, that uh, rather than people, you know, under medical supervision, uh, pursuing treatments that are no longer viable or even helpful, uh, hospice care is uh, a very good value for the dollar. And again, the human value is much higher than that. Covered by many but, insurance plans? Covered by people's Medicare benefits, covered by insurance plans. And because we are a not-for-profit and we serve in a community of very generous and gracious supporters, we don't turn anyone away. If a person qualifies for hospice care, doesn't have the means to pay, we still provide our hospice services free of charge. But typically paid for by Medicare or people's hospice benefit on their insurance plan. Bob, we've only got about four minutes left, and I'm going to spring one on you. I told you I couldn't be trusted. Oh, you've been really nice to me so far, Pat. Well, I'm going to ask you a question right now that you're going to have to kind of spontaneously uh, go into that career of yours that has lasted some number of years providing hospice care. And give us one story of just a special moment that exists in your mind because we have places like Hospice of the Valley. We had a veteran who came to us quite a few years ago. He was... uh, World War II vet from one of the Pacific Island battles, and uh, we were able to care for him. At uh, he was in a, one of the assisted living facilities, but to come along and provide him with uh, comfort and, and spiritual support that we could, and to celebrate his life legacy, we have a program called Hospice of the Valley Salutes. 
And years ago, without, you know, the COVID-19 restrictions, we were able to have uh, one of our volunteers go in and provide a HOV salute visit to honor his uh, military service. And then we uh, also had a volunteer that would provide spiritual care for him. And uh, Jerry Ebel was his name, and uh, he cared for this gentleman until his passing. And uh, Jerry continued to serve on uh, as a hospice of the Valley volunteer until, and sadly and tragically, this brings it home, uh, he became one of our patients, mm. and we lost Jerry about four years ago. Uh but I'm telling you that, uh, you know, it's uh, you realize the continuum of care and the difference that you're uh, allowed to make in people's life as you're invited alongside and uh, just how very, very, I'm sorry, Jerry passed just uh, just a year ago, uh, but uh, very special guy, served with us for years. And uh, took care of that veteran and so many others along the way. Uh, just really, uh, people like that, they stay with you. They stay in your heart. They stay in your memory. They remind you of the, you know it, but of the significance and the work that you do and uh, and the legacy, the gifts you carry in your own heart. From doing this work. With just about a minute left, I'm going to provide service to somebody right now who doesn't know where to go in their community, in their town, in their city to find the right support because a doctor just told them there's nothing more to be done. Where do you go? Uh, that doctor should be able to refer them to hospice care. Uh, the, I trust that if they don't bring up the subject, you bring up the subject with mm -hmm. them. And if not, just keep asking in your community. And there should be a hospice care option. The movement has grown so much. Uh, and ask. Ask until you get what you need. I remember the word that continued to come up through this through this hour repetitively uh, is not a somber word uh, it's joy and it's amazing yeah. how often that's associated with hospice care and the right organizations providing it Bob Barrett has been our guest a chaplain at Hospice of the Valley and I've been your host on The God Show I'm Pat McMahon